1: Well, this is the second and final episode on what for many, as we said in episode one, might prove a little unsettling. Marketing teams, it seems, know far less about effective media than most of us actually would expect. Marketers typically spend just 5 to 10% of their time on media, even though it's one of their biggest investment lines. And it perhaps explains why we're about to hear again just how much is not known by so many around the basics of media planning and effectiveness. It's why James Dixon and Claire Fenner at Atomic 212 have penned a new book, How to Do Effective Media. It's a kind of fast dive into media science and the practical ways in which brands and marketers can do media far, far better. In episode one, which you'll find on MI3's podcast tab or via most of the podcast platforms, We covered some fascinating perspectives around the troubles and upside in bringing CFOs and finance teams into the marketing and media conversation around growth, the surprising lack of science that is used to inform media planning and audience strategy. We covered market and media mix modeling. We're all a bit behind there too, and also setting proper objectives, which today is often based on really outdated benchmarks. So today we're going to cover off the final four themes audience, reach and frequency, media mix investments, and budgets. And to do that, we have the same crew on the mics. Nicole McInnes, Director of Marketing and Commercial at WW, formerly Weight Watchers, John Wilde, CMO, at online Pet Supplies, Pure Play, Pet Circle, and James Dixon and Claire Fenner at Atomic212. Welcome back, team. Let's get to the final four critical themes. But James and Claire, why don't you quickly recap why the hell you needed to write a book on doing effective media? What was this? What is this madness? Give us a give us the quick summary and welcome to you all.
2: Thank you, Paul, and thank thanks everyone for being here. So yeah, we wanted to write a practical guide for marketers. Uh, to empower them to do better media planning and get more ROI from their media. Uh, We don't want to be unsettling. We just wanted to give give, uh, CMOs in particular uh, a way to understand and work with their media agencies to achieve more growth and more return on that investment. So the book outlines in eight chapters an eight-step process. We call it the effective media system. And last podcast, we covered the three fundamental elements, which are a united team, the CFO, CMO, and CIO, working cooperatively to understand the media data and model that forward. Uh, And the other premises are that scientific approach, have a hypothesis when you go to market, test and measure and record and document for future purposes the outcome from that media investment. Uh, And to do that, the third premise is have statistics and modeling in your armory, if not a data scientist on board. Uh, And we covered that really well last podcast. So that central premise then applies to the sort of five components of media planning, Confirming the objective, confirming the audience, confirming the channel mix, confirming that reach and frequency question, and then the level of budget that should be applied to achieve the growth. So thanks again for the the opportunity to present that. And the book is available for download at the Atomic212.com.au website.
1: Go get it. And I have to say probably the uh, the unsettling term was mine, not, not yours or Claire's, but I'll take the heat for that one if anyone thinks I'm out of order. Yeah, I, I just think it's quite surprising. But okay, let's get to the first theme then, uh, team. And um, it's audience. Uh, is targeting a good thing? And this just gets really contentious, doesn't it? Um, but does it limit growth and does it create a myopic mindset? Uh, James and Claire first, give us your thoughts on that uh, before we get to, uh, to the marketers at hand.
3: I'll jump in first. There's obviously a lot of theories about mass targeting versus hyper-targeting. And obviously, the prevalence of digital marketing has made everyone quite addicted to the ability to be able to target at a really micro level. But And the reality is that most mature businesses, I would say, are using a combination of mass targeting and hyper-targeting these days. I think it's a mix. There's obviously lots of theories about the benefits of either approach. Um, but in terms of the ability to drive growth, through targeting or not targeting, I think there's arguments for both. I think there's a lot of businesses these days that have actually built from the ground up and grown from the ground up purely based on digital marketing and those lower funnel tactics that just absorb the existing demand in market. Pet Circle's a great example of that and John can talk to that. Um, but there's ultimately going to be a limit to how much you can growth you can generate from that. It's not necessarily a low limit. It can be quite a high ceiling that you can grow quite a substantial business just from those tactics. But at some point you need to start to actually build preference for your brand and drive um, awareness and actually start to generate demand for your brand and your business or product. Um, And so that's where you start to move into broader channel mix and start to actually generate demand. And generally speaking, you're going to start to look at more mass-targeted approaches. That doesn't mean targeting everyone necessarily. It can still be a target demographic, um, but that's where you start to get the real scale um, and long-term growth for a business that's a bit more mature.
1: Yeah, and there's a, there's a whole bunch of uh, conversation wrapped up on what you said, Claire, and we'll hopefully unpack that. James, your top-line thoughts on audience and targeting and so forth.
2: We get excited when people push through that Um targeted glass ceiling uh, but appreciate our clients then have to go into more speculative media and that's what when modeling particularly comes advantageous to track the the typically the above line channels uh, where they've been typically used to having that last click or digital attribution running through their reports Uh, when they venture and put their foot into that the above the line things get more tricky to understand how they impact the bottom line so that's what the book talks about a lot uh, and that's where you need the scientific approach and the statistics and modelling to come through.
1: Well, Nicole McInnes, let's let's start with you, and, and maybe I set it up with uh, mass targeting and wastage has been quite an uncool theme for a long time. Are you with for or against that one, and what's your sense on the targeting and audience stuff? Because it's um, it's been quite a debate for probably a good 10 years, right?
4: Yeah, well, you'd think that I'd be in the hyper-targeting camp given my pure play digital background, but I actually really believe in... Uh, mass, mass reach, um, mainly because of what Claire was saying about the um, awareness and consideration and the trust that you need to build with, with brands. I think personalization was this promise that humans would react uh, in such a positive way because we've we've tailored it to them, and so the assumption was that humans are inherently incredibly selfish and self-involved. What it what it didn't take into account is the community, and the impact of a whole community and peer group on your decision making in all sorts of areas, including consuming. So if if your brand is not a part of the zeitgeist, if you like, or a part of your peer group and known or to, or or talked about, it's got a lot less trust, and it that's when if we if you don't have both running at the same time. Where you can have that talkability, have your peer groups sort of influence you as well, and actually give them dinner dinner party conversations, then you know it becomes a really lonely consumer experience. And, and humans don't act like that. They don't act in isolation. They act. They need to um, connect, and they want to connect and talk about what they've found, what they're what they're doing, what shows are on Netflix. You know, so I think that's where personalization has a fault in it um, and I think what James said, you know, it it suits us better because we can track it. That's not a reason to do it just because it's more trackable and we can report on it easier. The, the reason to do it is will it make the human take action more so than if you don't? I think in some cases, yes, the convenience that it brings will make them take action more so but in a lot of cases you have to build that trust, consideration and awareness for them to even even think about taking action and trust your brand and part with their money.
1: Great, great thoughts, and you know it's 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 just you we're starting to see a shift in that thinking per how you've articulated, Nicole John. What's your what's your thinking on, on hyper targeting? Are you a hyper targeter? I,
0: I mean, I, I definitely run programs that, that hyper target. I don't necessarily believe in it as being the only strategy. And I actually I first, first of all, want to sort of point out that I think one of the issues is there's confusion in in terms of understanding your customer deeply, which we must do. As a marketing team and targeting, they're very different things, but I think they often get conflated. The, the other, the other thing that is that, that is very present is the, is the C-suite, the boardroom, is looking for efficiency. They're looking for accountability. They're looking for yield, and that's what. And, and often, and that again is confused with audience targeting. What I can tell you is the most efficient audience you're ever going to find is your existing customers. So, so that, so you know, and if you want to follow that strategy to the nth degree, you don't grow. And I think that's, I think this is the critical piece here is. I think audience targeting needs to be a function of your strategy. So if, you, if your strategy is to grow, you can't keep talking to your own existing customers or the same bucket of customers. You've got to find new ones. And in some ways when you, need, when you do that, you need to take a leap of faith and move into this sort of move from demand intent to demand generation. And, and, and you know, and you, have to, and you have to have that confidence and I think that's – you get the confidence by instrumenting yourself differently and that's through the modelling and statistics and experimentation that, that we've talked about earlier in, in, in the podcast. But for me, it's like function of strategy. That's the first thing you need to you need to sit back on, and you've got to you have to be able to intelligently and via numbers um, respond to the to the board room, to respond to the C suite. That you know, if you follow yield, you. Explicitly, you will not grow.
1: How do you carve that up? What are you doing then um, with your business in terms of the mix between hyper and and, and or targeting, I should say, and brand or, or longer term? What, what what is it? How does it work out for you?
0: You know, the first thing is you have to be. And we, and we talked about a lot of these principles in the early chat from the from the early sessions in the podcast. I think first of all, you have to you have to be buttoned down, and you have to instrument the the, the, the sort of the clickable media, the audience targeting. So you have to be able to look at that. And you have to be able to look at its true incrementality, not just, not just the sort of the, the data or the feedback loops that you're getting from the, from the last click or the, the click-based attribution systems. The second is, is you then need to create experiments or models or other methods to measure the, the, the uh, impact of your mass media, your less targeted media, your growth media, if you want to call it that. And that, and that, that is iterative. You know, my 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 advice is always triangulate because I think no me- no one single measurement system typically gets it right, and I think if you can do that, you, be, you build you then build confidence in the, in the boardroom and the C suite in in in, a, in in um driving for growth and and you know implementing growth strategies, which typically means going up the funnel.
1: So some quick thoughts from from Nicole, James, and Claire. Um, you know, is this still like in, in terms of this what we're talking about here for for many digital marketers? this okay it has to go beyond targeting beyond personalization is it still like eating sawdust for many or are they coming round to it? Um, Nicole you, you've been on that side of the fence there's still pushback there's still well there's still great advocacy for personalization and hyper targeting in its own right
4: yeah there's there's a huge push and, and like Jonathan said it's it does come from for marketers it comes from the executive. Uh, because they do see the efficiency of it, and they think, well, we can save all this wastage by just going for the customers we know will convert. But it, yeah, it, it fundamentally is a flawed belief. So it, it's it's on beholden on us to to really educate, and I think that that triangulation of all the models that we're using to re educate and put the push the data back up to show that if we did go down that way, we will shrink. But if we do these other things that do cost more maybe in the short term, it will actually grow you mid and long term.
1: Claire and James, um, what are you seeing across your, your client portfolio and in market thoughts on, on on eating sawdust and, you know, is there resistance to, to, to broadening out beyond personalisation and targeting across the market that you see?
3: I personally think it's quite an individual thing. I think a lot of marketers, whether they've been focused on digital in there career or not, I think they're more and more open to the need for a combination of both hyper-targeted activity and mass. But there's still individuals that are very resistant to moving away at all from hyper-targeted digital activity. But I'd say broadly speaking, um, and it comes down to budget as well, if they have a limited budget and targets, um, to John and Nicole's point that the exec have set that are gonna make that very challenging to deliver with any wastage then obviously that starts to push them towards being much more hyper-targeted and just getting the most efficient conversions. But without that constraint, if there is enough budget to do a combination of both, there's generally an appetite to do
2: so, I'd say.
1: James, your thoughts on, on, the, on the mindset out there with, amongst digital marketers at least?
2: Digital marketers are reluctant to exchange their budgets. They've sort of hard, hard fought and won those budgets over the years on, increment, uh, on showing incremental ROI and it's a leap of faith for them to sacrifice that in, a, in an awareness channel. Bin Enfield talk about the long and the short of it and the the short, the short long of it having about a six to nine month uh, return. So you've got to kind of speculate for six to nine months before you see uh, emotional brand messages returning value. So I think it is tricky for a business to sacrifice six to nine months of revenue in a speculative way. So my, my sympathies are with them, but but the the science and the evidence through Bennett Field is there that the, the long of it does pay off.
1: Good observations. Let's get to the next one: reach and frequency. Sometimes bamboozling. I remember uh, as a cub reporter three hundred years ago that there was the debate was all about was it one two three or did to get to six? And that sort of that was the nature and the depth of the debate in the nineteen nineties maybe. Um, so is reach and frequency is it still a valid planning approach given device and screen proliferation is is close enough to exponential? Uh, James and Claire your initial thoughts on reach and frequency. What are, what are we where are we at with that?
3: Firstly to the first part of your question there, I think it's still really critical to understand what optimal reach and frequency is for your business for each campaign, for each product. Um it's certainly not irrelevant despite the fragmentation of media these days and that's something I'll touch on in a second, but I think there's a lot of, um, certainly what we see is that a lot of agencies, and we see that when we take on a new client and the client's talking about, oh, our old agency used to say um, that a fixed version of optimal frequency is one plus or three plus. They're bought into a concept of what optimal frequency is. But I believe that the reality is that that optimal frequency level can be determined but it's very much influenced from a variety of factors like there's so many real world factors that will influence that for a particular product a particular campaign a particular brand and that could be the creative message how long the creative's been in market the duration the product life cycle so many variables within that even the channel you're talking about, there's so many things that will dictate what the optimal frequency is required to hit to actually deliver the results for your campaign. But I don't think people are talking about that. We too often get asked the question and it sounds like they expect a simple answer of one plus or three plus, what is the optimal frequency for this campaign? So this effective media system is all around testing what works for each individual campaign and product, etc., to actually determine that for your business and for particular types of campaigns that you're looking to run so that you can actually know what works in your own circumstances based on those real-world factors. Coming back to my earlier point about the fragmentation of the media landscape, given that reach and frequency are still critical, but obviously that's now fragmented across multiple channels. I think too often agencies and marketers are focused on the frequency within a channel So talking about TV frequency or programmatic frequency, whichever um, channel we're looking at, they're very much looking at it in isolation. And that comes back to the fact that there's no true reliable tools that allow us to calculate an accurate cross-channel RNF. There are definitely methodologies that can be used, but a lot of them have major weaknesses. Even a leading tool in the US recently launched um, a cross-channel rnf measurement and it's using total overlap method which is so arbitrary just comes down to someone saying i think that there's probably a 20 percent overlap between these channels and that then determines what your cross-channel rnf is which is just not going to give you an accurate accurate read there are very very detailed empirical science that can actually guide um, the cross-channel rnf but the reality is that they're too complicated and impractical to apply and so the There's a disconnect with understanding optimal R&F, but then also understanding what you're actually delivering against those targets as well. Um, So there are definitely challenges in this space, but I think it's much more complex and nuanced than just a single number.
1: Yes, well, de-duplication um, or duplication is one of the new holy grails, right? How do we get there? And It's interesting, you know, you look at what the uh, World Federation of Advertisers is trying to generate with this whole cross-media measurement system to find duplication or find the wastage and the overlap. Um, it's interesting to see how that plays out it's still a few years away. James, your thoughts on uh, on reaching frequency. Are you fixed or fluid, Mr. Dixon?
2: I appreciate how hard it is, if not impossible, to, to work out what, what it is before going into market, so what we advocate in the book is that test and measure approach and probably a matched market test where you're going heavy, heavy, heavy frequency in one market and more normal typical frequency in the other and see which one responds. And I think back to the menu log campaign, I think two years ago where I just saw it everywhere on radio, on TV, on out of home. And um, that was a hugely impressive frequency and certainly changed my habits. So I'm curious if they've ever modelled that and established if they've got an optimal because that one was ubiquitous. I think.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, John, um, fixed or fluid? Do you have an optimal rate, or are you are you moving around like um like a I don't know an athlete on a sports track? That's a terrible analogy, but sorry.
0: I'm fluid on this. In some ways, who cares? Like i can take it a bit further. You know, for me, for me, it depends on what outputs you're driving to and what your goals are. You know, um, it's a useful input as as, as um, James and. Claire has sort of described, but it's an input. It's not something. It's not an output. It's not a goal. You know, it's something you can measure progress on, but it's not. But it's not something that you can declare success off. You know, it's similar to impressions. You know, not every impression is created equal. But again, it's not. It, that doesn't determine your out the outcomes or the goals. It's simply an input. So, for, so for me, I think you, the way you've got to think about it is you. It, it, it's a it's a means to an end. I think you collect these inputs as ways to measure your progress to the outcome. But it's like, it's a silly analogy, now, if you're going sailing, you don't just look at how, 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 how strong the wind's blowing. You need to understand its direction, the boat, the shipping lanes, the, the weather, the temperature, all that stuff, right? You need to take all that stuff into account to understand the output of where you go. idea, in this case, the analogy where you're going to. So, so, so for me, I think definitely, I definitely think you want to you want to track it. I definitely think you know, but it should be a product of the outcome you're driving to not the starting point or the end point, sorry.
1: Have you done then, for instance, uh, work where it's one or three plus in terms of um, the frequency or and like you're moving around? So in, in what instances do you apply different numbers? I
0: haven't got down – I haven't actually experimented with free, reach and frequency um, specifically. We've generally got to sort of channel level um, sort of dark test. So you, you run it, you run one market, say, with TV on, one market with TV off. I haven't got to that level of detail. It, it's, it would be tough to pick up in a, in, a, in, a, in a match market test. You're starting to get, you know, you, I, I generally find with match market tests, you want to try and really pull really strong signals. Reach and frequency might be a little hard to tease out. But I think, but then but I say that I think once you reach maturity as a business and you've had campaigns running for a while, that's the stuff you then move to, to optimise what, you, what, what your ideal reach and frequency is for, for again, for whatever goal you're striving to.
1: Nicole, your take. Um, have you, you know, have, have you been a one plus advocate? Three plus? Did you get to six or seven at any time in your career?
4: Um, I actually, I actually heard um, through working in on publisher side years ago that eight is a really good number. Yeah, eight. <laughs> Just to throw another number in there. Is that
1: from the numerology charts? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's, right. after that,
4: it's sort of you get those diminishing returns. So I don't know where three plus and one plus actually came from, um, but. I always try to therefore go for three plus because in the back of my head I'm like, you know unless they see it you know eight times, yeah they're not gonna remember. So uh, I think one plus is pretty like pointless. Um, so I'd always look at 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 three plus um, when I'm looking at TV and I, I look at cost per reach and then compare I I, I use it sort of as a measure like John was saying, of um, trying to get a little bit of a like-for-like like across different channels. So how many um, users will we get and what is the cost per user? And equally, not all reaches are equal, so you've got to then take into account viewability and, and other factors. And also, you know, watch for your TV networks piling your reach into um, – Weird little
1: spots, some some some, some dark hours. <laughs>
4: some weird little spots in the in the you know that they can't fill. So yeah. um, you've got to just I, I, it's it's never something that you just would plan off in isolation. It's something that um, it I think it is valid to Claire one. I still think it's really valid to to have that um, measurement. Uh, and I I think as humans you do need to see things a few times to start to remember. But you don't need to, I think you don't need to see it a hundred times. I think this is really key. I think there's a real, uh, there is some mega wastage going on on TV at the moment where I think if I see another one of those ads, which I'm not going to mention, but if I do and if I hear that piano music, I might, you know, I don't know what I might do. Like it's just too much. So I think there's a point where it becomes annoying.
1: Let's go to media mix. Um, media mix models, um, they sort of throw up a scientific planning method. Um, but as we, I think we have sort of touched on in the last episode as well, they're really used. They're not used that frequently. Why so? Um, James and Claire first, uh, media mix modelling.
3: Yeah, so media mix modelling as part of the effective media system, we're actually recommending that it's a critical tool to measure the effectiveness of these different media levers that we've been talking about. Um, but also overall effectiveness of each channel and campaigns in driving a business outcome. but these days, and it's I feel like it's kind of gone um, out of vogue, if I can say that with the prevalence of digital measurement and the full security that digital measurement gives businesses, it's moved everyone away from a broader cross channel measurement or marketing mix measurement which modeling or marketing mix modeling provides. And I think that's partly due to the fact that digital measurement is so easy to tap into. It gives them real-time insights into what is working or what they believe is working in digital based on those metrics. Um, But it obviously doesn't give us the full picture. And I think the reason people have so quickly over the last, say, 10 years moved away from media mix modelling as such a valuable tool in measuring campaign effectiveness and marketing effectiveness is probably because it used to be such a cumbersome and expensive process to go into whereas these days it can actually be done very quickly using machine learning so it can be turned around in a very short space of time. There's a couple of challenges that I think still come into the barriers of why people aren't using it in everyday measurement and reporting and I think the first being that um, getting the data is actually quite complex. We're doing models for a number of our clients and actually collating the data in a first instance is probably one of the biggest barriers, trying to pull it all together. If we haven't been their agency for three years, which you generally need a trend of around three years' data, they then don't necessarily have that historical data because largely all the channel-level data and investment data is actually held by the agency um, and the marketers haven't done enough to actually compile that data themselves just relying on the fact that The agency knows but then obviously when you switch agencies you don't then have that data so that's probably one of the biggest barriers Um, but then i think another barrier is actually the um, management internally of actually getting the business to buy into a new reporting methodology that's going to show a much truer version of channel performance across all channels Um, but it's going to change the metrics of what that they've been reporting on for digital for example to the business the metrics from digital measurement are going to look very different in media mix modelling. And so that's quite a um, challenging conversation for some marketers to have in actually influencing that conversation and being able to say to the business, we've been measuring everything this way for the last X number of years, up to 10 years probably, Um, but we're now looking to measure everything hopefully more accurately using media mix modelling, but it starts to create very interesting conversations, and I think that's a barrier that we come across as well.
1: Mm, It's funny, isn't it, when you talk about all that the the, the, sort of the data, the difficulties with with pulling the data together, because all you hear is we're we're all been running headlong and at pace to this data utopia, but we're still getting our essentially getting our shit together on data, and it's been talking about it for so long, it sort of keeps coming up all the time that actually the infrastructure is not there to do it. Um, James, your thoughts on uh, media mix modelling?
2: I just want to encourage marketers to turn their heads toward media mix modeling and, and within that machine learning. Machine learning will certainly come through all business activities in the next three to five years and really encouraging to see businesses adopting machine learning technologies and resources. So having a data scientist in house uh, is something of a prerequisite, but not, not essential. And I do believe most marketing teams could grasp and grapple with how machine learning can really help them understand their media and their marketing. And it is now quite accessible through um, cheap tools. Google has a machine learning product called Auto ML that can get most of the way there for most businesses. Um, but it's a learning curve that I'd really encourage marketing teams to, to start on that path if they haven't already.
1: Mm. Nicole, um, Data Utopia, are you there?
4: No. <laughs> I have so many different models running at the moment that I I sometimes find myself buried in about 20 tabs of different either BI tools, um, Google Data Studio, Google Analytics, um, the different attribution models in Google Analytics. <laughs> 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 but yes, I, we, we have done some media mixed modeling. And the reason that I've um, done it and, and want to do more of it is because... I mean, the, the thing, it doesn't take much to realise that the digital attribution is flawed because 60%, 50 to 60% of your sales when you're in a, a direct-to-consumer business comes through uh, brand search, organic search, and direct. Right. And, and so right there you've got a problem like because you, you're not going to, like, people are searching for your brand. You don't know what happened and why. And they couldn't have all been driven by Facebook or Instagram. (laughs) It's just like, it's just not, they're not all in the same ecosystem. So even with, um, you know, algorithm driven, uh, digital attribution, you still do not solve that big 60, 50, 60% of your sales. It's in that black box. Uh, and that's where this, you have to go further. You have to you know, take your lens further to find to solve that ambiguity, that that dark shade in your, um, I suppose, in your efficiency. You know your total efficiency, but there's fifty percent where you just don't know exactly how the consumer got to your site.
1: And how's the modelling shown up or enlightened you uh, on on those dilemmas?
4: Well, the modelling is actually shown that some of the above the line channels are really worthy and really really good from an ROI point of view and drive massive impact into our sales like not you know not brand measures not soft measures but you know direct sales impacts and so that's that's been so helpful in in a world where digital is very much what people want to do because it because it's efficient and it's trackable and so you've got this massive push behind you um in especially in digital companies to try to to generate the growth and the sales all from digital so to to do the media mix modeling and to solve that big dark cloud in my attribution visibility yes. um, has helped me to you know educate my stakeholders and actually use the budget more efficiently to drive more growth.
1: And as it is, it is as um, efficient and, and low cost as what um, Claire and James talk about. Is it expensive? How much are you paying, Nicole?
4: It's not expensive, but I, I'm not sure whether that's just because Atomic are generous or...
1: There's a beautiful <laughs> plug.
4: Or they're experimenting on us, which is fantastic.
1: It's, you're a lab rat. John, um, your take on this.
0: Yeah, look, I think it's not easy is, is probably the first point. And I think the other issue is, is that, Typically, this has been sort of in the domain of econometric modelling, which is often historically looking back, you get an answer, but it doesn't help you with your decisions moving forward. The, the shift, as James and Claire alluded to, is that you've now got machine learning, you know, high computational power and so on. So the ultimate goal is to have a, a media mix model that allows you to make future decisions. You know, and, and, and ultimately, they should allow you to scenario plan. So what if I go spend this, this channel and this channel? The model should be able to help begin to sort of plot out what that outcomes might look like. Um, what and the other thing that the complexity in them is not just media. The, a media mix model looks well beyond it. You know, for what, you know, one of the things you have to have in there, is, for example, is pricing. And often you need to, you need you need an index of pricing versus your competitors. That stuff that and, and as again Claire mentioned, most people haven't haven't been collecting that. And without that, your model is not going to be that accurate. That all said, I think the process of building an MMM is actually also valuable, because as a marketer, you start looking beyond your click based uh, systems and you start realizing, Oh God, you, you have this revelation, Jesus. Pricing is important, <laughs> surprise, surprise, surprise,
1: yeah <laughs> you know? Yes.
0: So it forces you as, as it, it almost forces you as a market to go back to the, you know, the traditional four peats or five piece whatever you want. So, so I think there's, there's a lot of value in the process, it, the where you want to get to is and where I got to actually in North America with, 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 um, with Groupon is we would, we would make a prediction on a weekly basis through the media mix model of the next week and then we would score the model um, versus the actuals, and then we would optimize it. And we got to a point where we we began to understand our non-clickable media channels, the directs, and, and even, even broken down into TV, radio, whatever, in, a, in the same way that, that you could understand your click-based media. It, again, a, a point here, it's generally limited to a single objective function, so you have to be smart about what you pick, whether it's revenue or you know new customers or whatever, but it allows you to begin to sort of or makes those channels look and behave to the C suite and the board similar to, to digital channels. Um, and what, it, what what I learned in in the US specifically is, you know, uh, over over their TV was was more efficient than search on acquiring new customers. Um, so so so, and it, but it really it, there are, and you get some some quite sort of um, really interesting insights as a result of doing it
1: and challenges a lot of norms there by the sounds of it or quite contrarian in some ways with the with where, where the thinking is at the moment it's some some really really enlightening stuff here let's we, we've got to move on so uh investment and budgets the final one dear audience um investment and budgets cfos seem to favor incremental annual budgets over zero-based budgeting uh why so james and claire and one of you probably should unpack in 10 seconds what zero-based budgeting is for those that will remind people what that's about
2: so for us, zero-based budgetings, when we get the opportunity um, to have a blank sheet of paper and a blank budget uh, and come back to our client with how much money they could spend and should spend for an effective ROI and for growth, as opposed to the more typical. So we rarely get that. The more typical approach, 95% of the time, is we've got X amount of dollars. Can you produce X plus 5% on last year from that money? Right. Uh, And it's that incremental sort of notion that finance uh, teams come up with, if not a a reductive type notion, which is, can you do more for less? Mm. This is the final chapter in the book, and it's kind of the alchemy that we aspire to. We admit we haven't got there, but when a model is really humming, as John said, it's been iterated and refined over the course of a couple of years. Uh, The place we want to get to is where we know uh, for every dollar we spend on media, what we're going to get back out, which are the best channels to put it in, uh, and where the optimum um, place is uh, in terms of investment level for every channel. And then when when they want growth, we can computate how much money needs to go in to produce whatever amount of growth and give the business that assurance in a scientific way that allows the CMO to go to the CFO and the CEO with a scientific underpinning as opposed to a hunch. Mm. Uh, and then I, I believe and hope that the, the, it unites the, the C-suite because the CMO is coming in with the… the the speak of the CFO, the numbers and the science, which are, are hard to deny when it comes from a place of stats and regression.
1: Got it, Nicole. So, uh, are you a fan of zero-based, or and how do you go in those fabulous conversations with your finance team?
4: I, I would be a fan of it because it would probably give me more budget. Right, <laughs> <in the end. laughs> and like I'm a growth junkie, so the more money I get, the more I, I think um, in in uh, in most of the situations I've been in, I've not been in that you know luxury position where I've got too much budget. I think there's only a few marketers in Australia that are in that position. Who are they, by the way? <laughs> I'm not going to say it because I don't know for sure. But uh, I know that there, there are some very, very big budgets out there, but I've not been lucky enough... Um, well, even when I did have a huge budget when I was at Dell, I had to do a five to one return on every dollar. So that was wow, that didn't right. feel like luxury either. so um, it's 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 about like uh, we've not hit any ceilings really on any of our channels. So for me, it's attractive because I think we could find out what the potential growth could be if we did this exercise alone. I think we, I think the exercise in itself could be really valuable. Uh, whether I could sell it in and, uh, and take the risk, what if the growth didn't come? <laughs> That's another story altogether.
1: Well let let's start across to Claire and James on that um, So uh, should Nicole you know take the risk and would it be upside? What's your hunch?
2: I, th- I think about that ESOF model as a quick sort of guide so for clients to understand. Their share of spend in their competitor set versus their share of market, and then that outlines quite slow growth. For every ten percent you excess share on your on your share of market, uh, category you'll grow one percent or so of market. So that's some quick maths that marketers can apply to understand uh, to understand the growth cost. Um, but the true uh, true uh, zero based budget would take a bit more time. And as John said. It's a two-year journey, but you learn so much on the way. That's why we encourage these marketing teams to join the, 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 the join the bus and, and get on it, get started, uh, because they'll learn so much about their business in the process.
1: John, are you Captain Zero?
2: Um, yeah,
0: I, I think I am. I'm going to. I'll tell you how I, how most marketers probably run the budgeting or experience the budgeting process. Basically, you get business has a growth target, then there's an arbitrarily increase in marketing spend. And you're then told to go hit the hit the budget. Typically, you fall short in the first quarter, and then and then it's death by a thousand cuts over the remainder of the year. And so, so that that, that that's what I think is ult- how a lot of marketers experiencing the budgeting process. What really should happen is you should have a business growth target, and then you should put together the pieces that actually try and get you there, including marketing. And again, often marketing is resolved to media spend, not not the full full marketing mix. And that, so, I, so I do think I do I do believe in that methodology because I think the current methodology is so seriously flawed, and it's flawed for failure. It's set up for failure. So, so, so I think that I think you've got to you, we do have to find a different methodology and a different approach to ensure that you know that, that we that we that we're really setting the right goals with the right inputs, including marketing spend.
1: Great. Well, th- there you have it. We have the full theory of everything around media planning and effectiveness um, in two episodes. I've got to go back and listen to it about three times, and I reckon I'll actually sound really, really informed and intelligent. So that was a great conversation, um, uh, I guess, uh, from here. What happens? Uh, we've got to try and do some of this stuff, right? This is this is the uh, the great ambition for both you, uh, Claire and James, right, is to actually get some of this stuff happening in market. Summary, final thoughts there from from both of you, uh, is there receptivity for this? What, How's it, How's the book landing? How's the arguments landing so far?
3: Yeah, we've got a bit of positive feedback. I think the reality is that um, it's probably a unique business that can adopt all of these um, functions and processes immediately. It's quite a different approach. So I think what people can take from this as a first step is learnings about that test and learn approach and trying to put scientific measurement across everything they do as a business rather than completely um, adopting the effective media system from day one. But the ideal state for us is that we actually start to change the way people operate um, in their businesses, in marketing teams and the broader business to start to get this science embedded in um, marketing and media planning. Um, But yeah, it is definitely something that I'd recommend them taking bits of learnings from this process and from the book Um, and applying them as much as possible to make sure that they're holding their agencies accountable but also getting the most out of their media investment and the learnings with that.
1: Small steps, small bites. Um, James, uh, is the the lights uh, going on for some people around this, do you think?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we've had a really good reception from the book and my, my final parting piece here would be feel free to download the book from the website. It's a free guide and it's deliberately designed to break down to eight chapters and eight steps um, to progress the the media ROI. And as Claire says, you don't have to adopt them all at once. Uh, It is a journey and we'll admit none of our clients are at the end of the journey. They're in the starting and middle stages as we speak.
1: Well, I reckon the ideal uh, is to read a chapter and then listen to the themes in this podcast and listen to real-world um, sort of observations from marketers because it's, it's really, really helpful. Nicole McInnes, John Wilde, James Dixon, Claire Fennett, thanks for a great conversation. Stay safe. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer, Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer.